actually what surprised me is as I would start looking at that and doing some examination, I realized the shame so often was, was actually not about those things. It was this. Why didn't you get more done today, Kelly? You failure. Why didn't you do more? And so the question is, should I be feeling guilt and shame about that? It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Do you ever feel guilty that you haven't got done everything that you needed to do at the end of the day? That there's just so much more to do and it feels like a moral failure. I mean, there's laundry that needs to be done, beds that need to be made, groceries that need to be got, bills that need to be done. I mean, oh, it goes on and on and on and on and on. I'm even tired just talking about it. But I know when I get to the end of the day, I feel overwhelmed. And maybe you do too. And we actually don't just feel overwhelmed. We feel that it's almost sinful to feel that we didn't get accomplished everything that we needed to get done. I think that we're looking at it all wrong. As a matter of fact, I think our limitations are actually a gift from God. You know, in our last conversation with Alan Noble, we really focused on the fact that we're not our own. We belong to God, which is extremely important in our crazy world where we feel like we have to create our own identity and then just totally announce it to the world, expecting the world to affirm it. And when it doesn't, we feel overwhelmed, worthless, useless, and failures. That is a form of slavery, tyranny, that when we understand it's to an audience of one that we really live in front of because he is the one who purchased us. We are not our own, that we were bought with a price. And it's what he says about us that really matters at the end of the day. That's what Noble's thesis is all about. And here at Apollos Watered, we talk about watering your faith so that you can water your world. Now, to water your faith means we have to understand who God is and how to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, we talk about loving our neighbor all the time, but rarely do we hear about actually how to biblically love ourselves. And to understand how to biblically love ourselves, which means understanding our limitations, who we are as embodied, engendered, created beings made in the image of God. We need to understand that. And when we do, that helps us know how to be and do in our world, which means know how to water our world effectively, how to live out and perform the gospel before people, meaning that we're, we're there to understand how to live in front of people so that they see Jesus and who he is and all that he has done. And that's why we had Noble on the show. And it's also why we've had Kelly Capic on the show and why we're going to be talking to him today, because his book goes with Alan Noble's like peanut butter and jelly go together. Alan wrote the book. You are not your own, right? Kelly wrote a book called You're Only Human. This is how it plays out in the day to day. And I really encourage you to listen into this episode because not only was it fun, but it's extremely insightful. But conversations like this couldn't happen without your support. We have conversations because of viewers 
and listeners and supporters like you. This November and December, we're in a big push to finish the year well. We need you to do three things for us. And I'm going to give you three S's because I'm a preacher and that's what we do. Number one, I want you to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. And go online to our YouTube channel. Just put in Apollos Watered, subscribe to that, because that ensures that many other people will have access to the truth of who Christ is. Then I want you to share it with other people. Well-watered people want to overflow and share it with others. And then lastly, we need your support. We need your prayer support. We need your encouragement, but we also need your financial support. And I want you to go online to apolloswater.org, click the support us button. And I want to let you know that your gift of $50 or more will enter you to receive one of 50 books we have available from authors who have been on the show. Names like Jim Wilder or Alan Noble or Felicia Wu Song or Brett McCracken. We have their books to give to you as a token of our appreciation for supporting our ministry. And it gets better. Our friends at Tyndale have provided copies of the NLT Illustrated Study Bible, which is really an amazing study Bible. I spent two years going through the Illustrated Study Bible that the NLT produced, and it is magnificent. Your one-time gift of $500 or more gets you a copy. And one last thing. You've probably heard us talk about our missio holistic approach to the Christian walk. This is nothing new. It might have a big word in front of it, but it's really something that's very ancient. It's about being God-centered, mission-framed with all of who we are, accomplishing the mission of God where we are. That's it. That's all that it is. And we're going to elaborate on that, explain it to you, show you how this works. And in January, I'm going to be starting a study that's exploring this misio-holistic approach. And all who donate to support us monthly will be eligible to participate in an online study with me this coming January. And I invite you to check that out. And I want to thank you for your generosity. But let's get to our conversation with Kelly Capic. Happy listening. Ellie Capic, welcome to Apollos Watered. <laughs> I, I, I can, I can feel the water coming already. <laughs> Here we go. Are you ready for the fast five? I guess. All right. Now you are in Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. So Lookout Mountain, Tennessee or home. Oh, high no. desert of California. That, well, I'm not from the high desert of California. Oh, you're not, but, where are you from in California? No, well, Remember Creedence Clearwater Revival stuck in Lodi? Okay. CCR, You're from Lodi? You know the band? Oh, I'm from okay. Lodi, California, near Sacramento. Oh, but all right, let me change my question. No, Lodi, and, California. And just show show how bad of a start this was, Travis. It's, <laughs> it's actually Lookout Mountain, Georgia, where the college is. It's, it's like three miles into Georgia. So, you know, oh I'm just, gosh. I'm crushing it right now. You this are is great. I'm, I'm dying. <laughs> no, I don't know why. Good. You know, what's funny because I thought it was Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and then I thought it was Tennessee. And then I thought it, uh, it's in both. So it's confusing. Okay. Well, that is somewhat. And there's, even Lookout Mountain, there's even Lookout Mountain, Mountain, Alabama. So whatever. Ugh. Give the people so. what they want. Tennessee, <laughs> Georgia, wherever they want. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> you went to school in london okay yep. you got so here's my question the best food in london is and where do you get it at it's called north shore i believe it was north shore is that right 
I, my wife is my brain. So <laughs> she's like but the cloud. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like the cloud. No, trust, she remembers everything. Trust me, this is our 29th year uh, uh, of being married. And everyone who knows this is like, no, that's that's true. Tabitha really knows. But I, I, we even took our children there this summer. I believe it's North Shore Fish and Chips. And when we lived there, you had to just walk up in a line. They'd give you this, you know, this fish and chips in paper you know, wrapped yeah, of up course. And it was amazing. And then we went back this year and now they still have that for the every person. And then they've actually bought and it's this dine in place. And we feel really good because when we went there, it was amazing. We thought this is it's near Russell Square where we lived. But now it's won all these awards. So, um, oh, yeah, that's the place to be. OK. All right. Fish and chips, of course. Fish and yeah. chips within the UK. That's what you have to do. Now, In speaking Russell of square area. OK. I don't know where that is, but That's right. I go there, I'll go and find it out. Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee. It's all the same, man. <laughs> UK. It's, <fine. laughs> it's all the same. London, Kentucky. <laughs> Whatever. It's God's world. <laughs> all right. Speaking of your wife, her being yes. your brain, what is a weird habit your wife says you have? Oh, man. There's so many, but it's probably <laughs> she and my children would say, Whenever they're starting to talk and I'm getting nervous or worried, I just start rubbing my face. <laughs> it just <laughs> provokes them to make more fun of me. So yeah. Yeah, that would be an example. <laughs> I do that, but I don't want my kids to know that. Like the yeah. fact that you've oh, identified it. it oh, they already found out so much. Yeah. It's like my daughter is home from college. I mean, she's mm. heading back, but she notices all these foibles and habits I have. And yeah. I'm just like, I, I love having her home. I was so happy. Even at the thought of her leaving again, makes me cry until she starts talking about that stuff. And I'm like, is it time for you to go yet? Because I don't need anybody yeah. else to point out all my issues. Yeah. Yep. Nope. That's real. <laughs> Welcome to family, right? I love you, dad. Now you are a professor. So the funniest experience you have had as a professor is again, there's a long list, but one thing <laughs> that comes to mind immediately is I, re I remember uh, it was the last class of a semester and you know, there are probably 30 or so students, 35 students in this class. It's an introduction to doctrine class. And I, I try and get students engaged and talking all this kind of thing. And there's a girl in the back who's not spoken a single time, not once. Mm. And I'm up there, I'm exhausted, it's the end of the semester, and I'm sitting on this desk, and I'm I'm having some kind of a throat issue, like I'm, I'm fighting some kind of sore throat or something. So for whatever reason, I bring an orange to class, and I'm, I'm asking them questions, I'm peeling this orange, and I start eating it in class as we're having this conversation. And I'm asking questions. And this, this girl in the back who's not said a single word, she shoots her hand up into the air, and I think, this is it. This is the moment. I've done it. I've broken through to this. You know, like this is going to be, you know, the, the it's it. Anyways, God is about to just show that all of this is worth it. I'm like, yeah. What's your question? What's your and she just said, real urgent, Doctor Kevin, you've got to stop eating like that. I'm so worried you're going to choke. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the first and only time she talked into class was because I was eating my orange too quickly in front of them. <laughs> Nothing to do with theology. So. Well, at least she cared. It's compassion. Yeah, yeah I guess. She, she knows your limits, yeah, right? You're exactly. your only human. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Here's the fifth and final question. Mm. Because you referenced this actually in the book. You, oh, you referenced oh. something. If you were a John Hughes movie, okay, mm. what movie would you be and why? I'm trying to remember when I mentioned John Hughes movies, and I'm trying to remember... 
what it would be. I, I can't think of any at the minute, but it could be because I just got back from an international flight that was 28 hours door to door. Whoa. <laughs> so you'll have to forgive me because I don't have any good uh spark my me- if you spark my memory and what I said or what movies my options are, but that's well, how bad I mean, it is right now. You've got like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Pretty in Pink, you know, kind of weird science, the Breakfast Club, 16 oh, yeah. candles. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. So I actually I know all those movies. I didn't know he's a director. I, I think I mentioned the movies, but not him. Now, again, right. my wife would know the director. If I included it, I had to look it up. Yeah, I, Breakfast Club was huge for me, right? All yeah. of them were uh, just so bad, but they were <laughs> they were huge for me. And my, as I talk about a little biographical info in the in the book, so probably Breakfast Club. Oh, I, you know, I was talking to our editor ahead of time and he mentioned, he goes, unquestionable, Breakfast Club. And, yeah. you know, not even an issue. <laughs> Not that's, even a question. That's funny. I I know all those movies. I just didn't remember who's the director. So Hughes is the director of those. Is yeah, right? I'm on IMDb okay. right now. There's a I'm lot of you. I I genuinely am clueless. No, <laughs> no, no. Me. I mean, there's some of them that I'm like, oh, he did that. Like planes, trains, and automobiles. I didn't know that he did. Wow. That. The Great Outdoors, Uncle there's Buck. There's a whole cluster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not what I think of, but you know, they're always, of course, set, usually in Chicago. <laughs> so that that was my thing because I know you went you went to Wheaton and then I was at Moody, so we've got a little Chicagoland connection. There you go. But, but let's move on to the book. Okay. You were only human. I've got you can see here. I've got some notes. Oh, I nice. I took well the book done. Because, yeah. Well, thank you. I get an award. Yeah, you do. It's you know. There's one thing to be interviewed by people who glanced at it, and there's another that actually engaged the book. So good job. You win. Well <laughs> so, so I'm talking. I just a quick, quick aside here. I'm talking to the guy on the show, and he goes, "I get on this this podcast," and he goes, "It's clear two minutes in that he hadn't read the book." Oh yeah. And he yeah. goes, he starts walking chapter by chapter, and I have to summarize. Yeah. Every chapter, the whole podcast is yeah. me going chapter by chapter. I was like, I feel so bad. <laughs> No. Maybe the same interview, or I've had the same thing where <laughs> literally every pause was, well, this is the name of your next chapter. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, more than once this has happened. <laughs> well, that's not happening today. All right. It is not All happening right. today. Because you, I mean, you you brought out the big guns for this. Even even my my editor was like, okay, this guy's read a ton of stuff. He's like, he brings in all these guys. You bring in John Owen. I mean, you're talking about him, Soren Kierkegaard. I mean, you're you're throwing out John Hughes references and movies. <laughs> Which That's I don't the even big dog. That. I know the Kierkegaard and the Owen and, and Augustine and all of that, but John Hughes, who knows? If, if he made the cut, that was, <laughs> that was, that was it. That's what made help. it. That's <laughs> so, okay, but let's talk about this book. Because this is a book that... Of course, is something that I think is for our time. This is not a book that you had seen written 150 years ago, right? It's not necessary then, but it seems to be necessary now. You're only human. So what is the the reason behind you writing this book that you said, by the way, it was 20 years or over yeah. 20 years in the making? Yeah. So so tell us a story about how this book came to be and why. Yeah, and I and I actually mean that. You know, sometimes an author say that you're like, no, I'm like, this is actually these ideas have been wrestling with at least twenty years. Yeah, there's some personal reasons. There's some theological reasons. Uh, maybe I'll start with a couple personal. One, and and I've told this story before, but but listeners tend to be able to relate to it. So I find when I put my head on the pillow at night that 
there's a surprising amount of time that a wave of guilt and shame comes rushing over me. And I'm a reformed theologian, if that means anything to your audience. And oh, that so means that, you get double guilt and shame. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I mean, if you really want to do the personal, I grew up Roman Catholic. Oh, triple! <laughs> converted in a pretty fundamentalist Baptist setting. And then have been Presbyterian for a long time. So, I, and I and I did a PhD in the Puritan. So, I am expert at guilt and shame. <laughs> but that's, that's another that's another uh, podcast. Another episode. But, but anyways, as a Reformed theologian, if I take sin seriously, right? Yeah. And so, if if when I have that sense of shame or guilt, eventually, you know, I think, okay, what's going on here? And if, as I evaluate my day, kind of do an examine in the old tradition. If I if I start to think about, oh, wow, I was really cruel to that person. I was dismissive, self-righteous. I was, you name the sin. As things come to mind, I need to repent of those things and just rest in the glory and grace of God. But actually what surprised me is as I would start looking at that and doing some examination, I realized the shame so often was was actually not about those things. It was this. Why didn't you get more done today, Kelly? You failure. Why didn't you do more? And so the question is, should I be feeling guilt and shame about that? Hmm. Because there's always just so much more I need to do. So much, so many more people I should see, books I should read, preparations for me. I mean, it's just depending on what you do for a living time with your children. I should spend more time, be more present. I should pray more. I should read more, my Bible more, memorize more. There's just so much more. And so it's very hard when that shame comes to go, yeah, I, I, I should do better. I should do more. And so as a theologian, I'm very interested in the question, what's the problem here? Mm. And my short response to that is basically in the world and in the church, I think the way we've dealt with that fundamental problem is through time management. And so even in church, when someone feels that we're like, well, let's get you more organized. <laughs> Right. Let's get you more efficient. So that that's part of it. On the other personal side, my wife and I got married in 1993. In 2008, she got a rare form of cancer that normally appears in women in their 80s. And she was in her 30s at the time. Mm. And we had two young children. And through God's grace, uh, eventually through surgeries and stuff, she was declared cancer free. But starting in 2010, she's had chronic pain basically every day since that day to this day. And and God provided resources I hadn't planned on ever researching and writing on suffering, but with her encouragement and a grant from the Templeton Foundation, I ended up writing a book called Embodied Hope, mm -hmm. which is about suffering. But what's interesting is though I've been wrestling with this idea of what I call finitude, I can explain that more. It wasn't until I finished working on pain and suffering that I felt able and equipped to now more clearly think through the goodness of being a creature. So in some ways it's a reverse order. Now, now I've had a lot of readers tell me, oh, I've read them both. And now I want to read them in reverse order. Cause actually you could read you're only human and then embodied hope later. But so those are the personal reasons. And then there's some theological ones, but I've been talking for a long time. So, but that's the job that you have. You're the guest on the show. You're supposed to talk. All right. As long as you're still with me. So, I mean, the, the other side is on the theological side, I'm deeply concerned coming from evangelical circles. I just don't believe we have a very robust doctrine of creation. And that is often, yeah, yeah that is often surprised people that 
they're like, no, we talk about creation all the time. We have for, for decades. And I'm like, yeah, but the test is when, when I say the word creation, what do you think? And they think, well, we talk about how old the earth is and exactly how God made it. We talk about origins questions. And while I think there's some relevance to those questions for the doctrine of creation, that is not the doctrine of creation. That's certainly not the first and foremost questions, I think. They're legitimate questions. and At some point, you need to talk about them. But I think for the last 150, 180 years, we've been so dominated by that kind of thing, it's actually really hurt the church. So things like, why do our bodies matter? And some of these kind of things really have been neglected. So in different ways, I've been trying to push into the doctrine of creation myself. You know, it's interesting that you you mentioned that uh, as I was reading your book, and it was funny because you then referenced them. I, I was thinking of Nancy Piercy and Tim Tennant because mm. I've had Nancy and Tim on the show yeah. um, and we were talking about embodiment, really, because I think that a lot of evangelicals have lost that. There is this idea of being disembodied, and it's only, I think, been exacerbated since COVID because so many things went disembodied. It was funny because you mentioned something in the book and then I went, oh, that sounds like Tim and Nancy. And then you refer to Tim and Nancy and their work and and being in creation, talking about creation. Now you've elaborated what it's not being creation, but elaborate what you mean by it and why that's important to ground this entire discussion in the doctrine of creation. So fundamental to kind of Christianity and our understanding of God and the world is we make this what's called the creator creature distinction. And so you have God who's creator. And then I'm going to give your audience a very technical definition of creation, uh, but I think is incredibly helpful. And this is the best I've come up with. Creation is everything that's not God. <laughs> that's it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but it's funny because that simple definition really helps. You know, like, no, no, no. Creation is not just like dirt. It's right. everything everything that's not God. And we're like, well, what about angels or planets? We haven't discovered everything that's not God, every animated, inanimate, everything that's not God is creation. And so you have this creator creature distinction. And then humans are this kind of centerpiece of the biblical narrative of the goodness of this creation. So one of the other things to emphasize is creation is good. Genesis is unclear about a lot of things. But if you actually read the text, what it is abundantly clear about is God made it good, 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 good. But then we get confused because we misunderstand what goodness or perfection could be. So, for example, I've already used this word finitude. It's a fancy word. It conf- it's not a word we use a lot today. But technically, fan- finitude just means limits in space, time, knowledge, and power, etc. Finitude doesn't even necessarily have to mean death. It just means limits in these things, mm-hmm. which is another way of saying what the Christian tradition means by the word creature. Hmm. We're creatures. We're just dependent. Now, here's the big aha. If everything I've said is true so far, then that means being a creature before their center of fall, it was actually a good thing to be a creature, which means by our very nature, we were made to be dependent. 
dependent on God, dependent on our neighbors, dependent on the earth. That's not part of the fall. The fall is what distorts all those dependencies, but not the fact that we are. And yet, you know, as you know, in much of the Western world, when we say the word dependent or dependence, I mean, that's never, if I say, if I'm talking to someone, I say, yeah, Travis, he's just a really, he's dependent on a lot of people. Like, is that ever used as a compliment? Is that a good thing? It's like, oh no. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a, but actually biblically, yeah. the idea that you would not be dependent on others is a sign of a problem. And that just shows how inverted we've become, how distorted we've become. Does that make sense? It, it does. It does, especially and when you're rooted in creation. Push back. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you. No, I, well, I, I don't want to push back because I think that you're right. I mean, mm. I, I think that we think that a lot of these issues that we have are from the fall, but I, I don't think so. I mean, we always have mm. issues are from the fall. I mean, right, 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 right. But the the idea that we have limitations, I don't think is is from the fall. And I think it's only in the modern era that we think that we can escape our limitations. Yeah. And because you 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 mentioned that, like we think time management is our problem. And I know uh, our mutual friend Alan Noble, he talks about technique and he 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 focuses on Jacques Alul, Jacques Alul, who is always saying, you know, the way out of our our issues, we think is technique. We find the right solution, we find the problem, and we want that three-point solution. And there's not always that because I don't think we understand the power of modernity and secularization. And and what that's done to us. I I I was joking, and I've 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 said this many times. We want to examine the currents that are carrying us along, like Finding Nemo, and he's in the EAC and he's being carried along. We don't even realize it's carrying us along. That's been some of the struggles that I've seen. You you actually write about this. I'm going to quote you, if that's okay. Where you said, "What if rather than serving as the cause of our problems, the draw of mind-numbing screen time was a sign of a deeper malady?" Because you talk about how people are just going off. Because they can't keep up and they don't realize their, their finitude or they've not embraced their creatureliness. You said this is a theological and pastoral problem. And, and that's when you bring out, matter of fact, you stole my thunder, but you, you talk about human finitude. It's like you were reading my questions or something. But my, my question is, is why or how do we help people realize that this is a pastoral and theological problem? Because I meet some people that think this is just it. You know, you're given 168 hours, if that's it, a week, and we have to use them to the glory of God. And they put this pressure, but it seems not like a biblical pressure. That's not how the biblical authors thought of these things. So draw this out, how we help people to see that this is an issue for a theological and a pastoral one. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that question gets to the heart and that could take us hours to unpack, but let's just say a couple things on that. I mean, first, starting with the technology part, part of, I, I'm, I'm a college professor, so I work with college students constantly. And there is this temptation, whether it's a parents, professors, all of us, we look at them and like, why are you guys looking at your screens all the time? Your phones and you're binge watching Netflix and you're doing this and that. And I do think these things can become problems. I understand there's an addictive nature to that, et cetera. I'm aware of that literature. I'm not naive, but, but I think actually part of where I've come to is I'm driven by the idea that the question is rarely, or the issue is hardly ever the issue. And so you should look for the deeper issue. And so I think we should ask why are students constantly, and it's not just students, it's people in the workplace. Why is everyone trying to fill up every moment with distraction? whether it's the phone or the binging of Netflix or whatever it is. 
And that I think is the interesting question. And I think it does point to this. Uh, and this is where Alan and I, our work is very different, but I do think they complement one another. And, and it, it's this idea of this inhumanity of the world right now and the expectations. And so I would say part of what's going on is all of that screen time, rather than the internet being the cause of the issues, although I do think they can help foster problems, we should be asking why is this escape so common and what is the deeper issue? And I think the theological issue is we are, we have undermined our comfort level with being creatures. And I think one of the things the church must do in our day, I think actually in apologetics, I, the word apologetics often makes me nervous. People try and be all philosophical and try and defend the faith in certain ways. And that can be good and it can be bad. But I, I've kind of started to think, well, I think one of the main apologetics for Christians in the West these days should be us presenting a more humane view of the world and of what it means to be a person. So that that's part of what I'm saying that's a pastoral and theological issue. Now, part of where you were hinting at, though, what I would also say is this is a massive problem in the church. And I, I'm already getting not just notes from lady. I get a lot from pastors. I spoke to a group of a couple hundred pastors just recently, and I had one come up to me and he just, he, he was not in a good condition. And he just said to me until two months ago, my wife said I was the energizer bunny it's late forties. I think I could always do more. It was great and everything. And then his body finally said enough, right? It's kind of the whole, uh, the body keeps the score. And also, and he lifted his hand, his hand was just shaking. And he said, I, it's been like this for two months. I can't control it. I've, I've stopped my head to quit my job. And, and just, and there are all these things going on. He's literally falling apart. And then, and then I end up giving my talk and then uh, talking to some other pastors. One pastor came up to me privately afterwards and he said, I left this ministry. It was too stressful. He didn't actually completely live the ministry because he found something else. But as soon as that became known in his area and denomination, all of these other pastors, one-on-one, privately, confidentially would come to him. And he said, two pastors within a month after his, this news told him separately and privately, I've considered suicide in the last year. And I, you know, I hear, and it's, and it's so much about, obviously there's other factors, the, the politicalization of the church, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, but actually what I'm commonly hearing is just these folks are worn out and they have such unrealistic expectations of what they should have been doing. And the church has such unrealistic expectations of what they should be doing. And so I I think the church isn't in a super healthy place in this stuff. And so that's part of what I'm really concerned about. We're going to take a quick break in our conversation with Kelly, but it's not a word from our sponsor this time. Instead, I wanted to point you to our special miniseries, A Well-Watered Life. Episodes are releasing on Tuesdays this November and December, and our first one, entitled Corey's Story, released earlier this week, and it's already been a hit. It's the story of what God did because we were able to water the faith of one of our listeners. It's an amazing story of grace and redemption, and spoiler alert, it's only the first half of our conversation. I know, surprising, right? But. 
Over the past year, God has been incredibly faithful to us at Apollos Watered. We've watched him grow our audience dramatically, and you have been extremely generous to us. We want to honor that generosity and continually work diligently to water your faith. Watching in awe is God makes it grow. That's what that passage is about in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one to make it grow, and we give all praise and glory to him. And we believe that there are some exciting new things on the horizon, and we believe 2023 is going to be a breakout year for us at Apollos Watered. And that's because you are partnering with us to water the world for Jesus. And we're taking the next steps to prepare, but need your support and partnership to make it happen. Your prayers, listens, and shares allow us to water thirsty souls. You enable us to help people like Corey and people like you to have a well-watered life that overflows unto others. That's why this November and December, we need to raise an additional $50,000 over and above our regular needs so that we can finish strong and start 2023 well. Remember, as I said earlier, a gift of $50 or more will enter you into a drawing to receive one of the books that we loved the most. And if you give $500 or more, that gets you an NLT, Illustrated Study Bible. Would you be part of that provision? Go to apolloswater.org and click the support us button. Thank you. Let's get back to our conversation with Kelly. Because I've been a pastor and I and we work with organizations like Care for Pastors, I work with the search firms like Slingshot and Vanderblum and if you're like the kind of like, you know, the the big players on the pastoral placement and the thing that I keep hearing over and over and over again is, you know, it's bad. Like, I, I think what you're seeing is some of the ministries have been built around this idea of performance, the show, and it's just gotten infinitely higher as, as time has gone on. And I think churches have lost the idea of contemplation, of, of thinking through these things. Uh, I think it was Jared Wilson had written an article for the Gospel Coalition, and he said, Pastor, you're paid to stare out the window. And, and, and I thought that was very good. but. I have my friends at the Center for Pastor Theologians. They created the organization because they saw that basically pastors were, uh, they, they talk about one church where they had been on staff, where their job was basically to send out emails and create videos. And they're like, you know, I'm trying to read Augustine's Confessions and, and I have to shut my door and people think I'm doing all this really bad stuff. <laughs> and it, 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 that, but that's where we're at is yeah. that the idea of the life of the mind, the heart, it's about the big personalities. I mean, even with Vanderblum and they had mentioned to me, I don't know if the statistic is still the same, but they said 50% of all their pastoral placements have no theological education. And that jarred me because I went, well, that means they're looking for the managers, the business administrators and the celebrity personas, but we're missing a lot of the scriptures of this disciplines, the discipline of the mind, relational health, the, the, the longevity of, you know, what was it? Uh, Eugene Peterson talked about a, a an obedience, a long obedience in yeah, the same direction, in the yeah. same direction. But this is where I think your work is very important because it centers us to say, you can't do it all. Mm. You, you just can't. And let me explain why theologically, this is why not, I'm not just going to tell you that I'm going to show you theologically how you can't do it all. And that's, it's why I really did appreciate the book, but it's, it's also how you brought it out. Like, for example, you talk about something that I went, wait, did he just talk about Mary's afterbirth? 
Um, <laughs> and, and you do. <laughs> you yeah. write about um, Mary's afterbirth. Uh, mm. Care to elaborate on why you included that and why? <laughs> yeah. It's amazing because it actually means a lot to me, which is, I know, hilarious. But I've been so, for me, one of the most important theological points or ideas that has been transformative in my actual life and, and ministry is the full humanity of Jesus. And most Christians kind of know, like, yeah, we believe Jesus is fully human, fully God. But when you actually ask, well, if you had to pick, which one's more important? Everyone's like, well, he's God. You know, some are clever enough to go, oh, you shouldn't pick. But when you when you actually start to push into it, our discomfort with the full humanity of Jesus is, is you know, it's significant. And, and it just actually sounds so irreverent, right? To talk about Jesus having gas or going to the restroom or going, you know, gets more uncomfortable, going through puberty, right? The Bible is clear he never sins. But that clarity is in light of his full humanity, he never sinned. And so the reason I talk about Mary's afterbirth is there's this early church father, Tertullian, who, who talks about it. And it really grabbed my attention as I was reading him because he was dealing, you know, in the early centuries after the church, he was dealing with this temptation to over-spiritualize the faith. And this, uh, some of your listeners will know about the Gnostics, but they they were into this kind of spiritual knowledge and the but the material world is not good and that has throughout the you know last 2000 years that temptation has always been there for the church to think god doesn't actually like the material world he cares about floating souls it's just the and and we don't even realize how much we end up being non-christian sounding in in this way no and so part of my big task is to say the God of creation is the same as the God of recreation. And Mary's afterbirth is part of it. So that the spirit hovering over the tohu levohu, over the chaotic waters in Genesis 1, and then bringing order out of them and affirming the goodness of creation, that spirit is the same spirit who hovers over Mary. And who you end up with um, Mary, who is a virgin, pregnant, with none other than the Son of God becoming incarnate. And when she gives birth, she gives birth to a real baby, right? And now, now some listeners are like, I, I still don't understand why you're talking about afterbirth. It's never in the Bible, which I think is a great question. Why is it never in the Bible if you think it's important? And that's where I'm very interested in. The reason it's not in the Bible is because it happened. It, it, in other yeah. words, we're like, how do you know? It's because like it rained. It doesn't exactly, mention it rains. It's right. just it's, normal. It's, it's the normal you life. have or what is abnormal, what you need to know because they wouldn't be expected. And so if it didn't happen, if actually Jesus popped out of Mary and hovered and floated and there was no, and there was no, it, then, then I'm pretty sure we would have data on that. Right? right. It's the same. It's actually the exact same reason you don't read about Jesus going to the bathroom. You don't read about him giving belly laughter. You don't read about that stuff because it's just normal. It's just part of his life. So that was a way of getting into it. Well, you, you made me think about the, the way we don't do with humanity, but for some reason, Kim Jong-il 
came yeah. in and there was this, all this literature about when he was a little boy, like he changed his own diaper. And oh, whoa. It, I mean, it was, it was this idea that he was God, you know, he, he golfed oh, the first time. And, yeah. So it's kind of a, he, and the powerful. was uncomfortable. Exactly. Because they couldn't uh, imagine that for him. Wow. I never and, heard and, that. and they That's talk cool. about him like golfing for the first time and he gets a hole in one, you yes. know, that, that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, but, but that's where it's just not real. What and this is where example. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You include but that. In we do with Jesus, I want to be right? cited. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's what we do with Jesus. It's exactly is, what we do with Jesus. So we're like, you know, he, if you know what a theological question is, there's, there's real debate. We always say Jesus is a carpenter. It was probably more like a stone basin historically, to be honest, but anyways, whatever kind of work he was doing with his hands, did he ever need to like, did he ever measure wrong? Did he ever, you know, and, and the question is if it's sinful, no, but that's where the question is. So often, so many of these things are not about sin. They're about being a creature and learning and developing and practicing. And so by all means, right. Jesus could have tripped. I'm sure he tripped. Jesus ate something that upset his stomach. Uh, Jesus, you know, so. Yes, that's a fact. I had never heard that example, uh, the Kim Jong-il example. So there you go. Yeah, you look that up to make sure. You got to yeah. cite me. <laughs> you got to cite me. But it's one of them. I know that it's one of them because there's all this apocryphal literature about it. You know um, you know the name Steve Brown? Yeah, uh, he, he does Key Life Ministries. He's got this oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. voice yeah. yeah, on the radio. And he was one of my uh, preaching profs. But he used to say, first time you hear a story... You say, you know, well, Travis told, you know, Travis did this. Right, right. Second time you, you use the illustration, you say, someone once said, <laughs> and he said, the third time, it's yours. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. I'm just telling you where this, where this is going. <laughs> um, but go, going back for a second, I think that it is very true that we understand that he was a creature, which is very uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah. For people. And and we forget that he grew in wisdom and in knowledge with God and with men. And I think that it's very important to to do that because we do have a tendency to overemphasize the deity of Christ at the exclusion of the humanity of Christ. But you mentioned something else <laughs> as because you have some really interesting pictures in part mm. where I'm looking at it and I'm like, okay, you're clearly a theologian and I'm reading it. And then you bring up afterbirth, which caught me. <laughs> and then you bring up belly buttons. Yes. Well, let's talk about belly buttons yeah. here for a minute. I love it. <laughs> so tell about yes. why the, the theological or or the assignments of first, your belly the, button. The importance yeah. of your belly button. <laughs> yeah. Again, because I work with college students, right? And so uh you mentioned you have a when we were talking, I think this was before we started, but you know, you have a, a daughter in college right now. I have yeah, a son yeah, yeah. in college. And but one of the things that happens in college. And it happens in high school, but especially in college, that's actually natural and okay. But students start to feel like, oh my gosh, my parents, and they drive me oh. nuts for this and that reason, right? And so even in the healthiest kind of situations, when it, when Christmas break comes and they're about to go home, I've learned to kind of give them, give them this assignment, you know, because even in a healthy situation by about day three, it starts out good, but then by about day three, they're like, Oh my gosh, the way my dad breathes. Right. <laughs> you said that. And my daughter had actually made that comment. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me right now. It's painful. Right. And oh. all the things, 
So I, I, and this is one of those where you really have to listen all the way through. Otherwise what I'm going to say just sounds creepy, but, <laughs> but, but I, I recommend the students to take a shower and to look down, which I know sounds terrible, but I, the point is to see your belly button. That's the point. And you're like, well, why this still sounds creepy because the point is the belly button is a physical manifestation that you did not create yourself, that you actually came from people and actually often you know, as we all know, it's pretty funny. The things that drive us most crazy about, say, our parents are things that we often are drawn, you know, are like in ourselves. Yeah. But I think the belly button is of theological importance because we live in this mythical world right now where we're told if you want to know who you are, if you just look inside and be whoever you want. And we deny this kind of reality. We didn't make ourselves. We come from somewhere. We come from, and historically, if you want to know, and as you know, it's a different chapter, but if you want to know who you are, through much of history and through much of the world to this day, if you ask, who are you? People say, well, I'm from this land. I'm from this tribe. I do this kind of work. It's all these external factors. And now we purely, we try and answer that purely from looking within. I think there is something helpful about looking in, but we have so skewed things it's distorted what it means to be human so anyways the belly button and it's physical reminder of our connection to our humanity and to parents and beyond is helpful well I, ha I have to share this so i had a guy who was an intern when i was a youth pastor and somehow we got in the conversation of belly buttons because it's you know it's, it's student ministry you're gonna yeah. get into weird conversations <laughs> and he goes Enough i don't said. he goes i don't have a belly button and I was oh. like, oh, of course you do. And he goes, he lifts up his shirt. And I kid you not, he didn't. He didn't have a belly button. I felt like I was watching the Coneheads, you know, like. It does not make sense. Well, it, yeah. And he's like, no, neither does my sister. And I'm like, okay, what? And he's like, no, seriously, we were born in the same hospital. And the way that the doctor clipped it, he goes, it ended up having a fold of skin that just covered it over. Oh my goodness! But it's, yeah. I, dude. I will have to. Sh I will. I will have him take a photo and send it to you. This sounds because... like an alien, but that's fine. <laughs> but I remember going. This is not real. Like you were so weird. But this is a trick I got to pull out at parties. Yeah. You know, there you go. Kind of that's, that's yeah. <laughs> we are in a time where people have this crushing burden to create their own identity. And we are cut off from our family, uh, who we are, our backgrounds. Uh, John Drain wrote a book called The McDonaldization of the Church years ago, and he, and he encouraged you to do this experiment in the book. He said, ask someone, ra rather than ask them what they do when you meet them, ask them to describe themselves. Now, this is in the early 2000s that I read the book, and, and, I, and I've tried to do that ever since then, instead of saying, what do you do? And it is fascinating. People automatically do that. But he said, I've done this exercise for years. I've only found one man who actually defined himself by his relationships. He said, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a father, and he went through all of that. But for many of us now, I think it's infinitely more even complicated. It's not about just necessarily what you do. It's what you're into, you know, what, what's your, your tribe of thought. I mean, we have so many infinite subgroups that we can identify with, which is really a crushing burden. And we think this illusion that we're cut off from our family. Your family is not what you you're born into. It's what you choose. And, and we have all these alternative definitions of family. And 
And I think part of the reason is, is we forgot that we are creatures that we are beholden. But why is that so, in some ways, revolting to the modern mind today that you are a creature and you have limitations? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think we're, I think we're just pretty inconsistent on this. In some ways, yeah. like we're, we love some of the psychological studies and I, because of some Templeton work I've done in the last decade, I work with Christian psychologists on various things, which has been really helpful and interesting. And in some ways I do think there's like just culturally a real interest in psychology, which often includes looking at family heritage connections, mm -hmm. physiological kind of things. In some ways, our challenge is we, we are interested in our, in our, biology right where we'll say well this gets passed on and this gets passed on and and yet in other ways we're like no 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 you get to define yourself and i i think we're actually we jump between those and are not comfortable with either but when we in social circumstances or in kind of media that what we really emphasize by and large is you get to create your own identity and it's just whatever you say it is and Dietrich Bonhoeffer in there, you know, when he was in his early 20s, in the early part of the 20th century, when he was first doing pastoral ministry, he was in Spain. So he was early 20s ministering, by and large, part of the congregation were these young high school students and stuff and college students. And, he, and he's talking about this thing, this very idea. And he's like, the problem is my inside world is completely chaotic. And so this is, this is where I think this is feeding our problem. Cause you look in and go, you know what? I am this, I feel this way. I think, and then the next day you're like, I don't know. <laughs> and so it's very unstable. Right. And Bonhoeffer years and years later has a, a poem he writes when he's in prison, where he's there because he's uh, accused of being involved in the plot to kill Hitler. And he has this poem where it's called, who am I? And part of the back and forth, as you may remember in that poem, is this idea of, you know, others, including the guards and others, they look at me and they think I'm under control and they seem in this certain kind of way. But I know I'm deeply scared and I move between self-righteousness and condemnation and all this kind of stuff. And in the end of the poem, which I think is very beautiful and powerful, he says, who am I? And it's like, I don't, basically, I don't know, but God knows. And that's enough. And, and that's a very powerful word in our day because whether it's we're trying to get our identity by looking inside and we just decide or by looking at other people and they get to tell us who we are, those are both in their own way kind of problematic. There is something about, no, no, God knows who we are. God takes our internal and external worlds into account. He's the only one who makes this perfect judgment. That's a meandering way of me saying, I really think these are very difficult issues in our day because in some ways we're all about our bodies and in other ways we're, we pretend that our bodies don't matter at all. In some ways we, we act like relationships deeply matter and in other ways we're like, no, 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 you get to decide these things on your own. So, and the, and the last thing I would just say there is Matt Voss is a good friend of mine who's a sociologist. One of the, and I mentioned this in the book, one of the exercises he does at the very beginning of an intro to sociology class and you kind of alluded to this kind of thing earlier. He's, he'll have a student come up and he'll say, tell me about yourself. And then he'll give this qualification. Good. Tell us who you are. Tell us about yourself. But you cannot use any, any reference to a relationship. 
And people will say, well, I'm a soccer player. Like, well, actually to be a soccer player, you're part of a team. That's as large. So that doesn't work. Or I'm anyways. And they actually can't do it. And then when he allows someone to come up and say, now tell us about yourself, but freely use relationship. Well, I'm from this family or I love this sport. I love this band. I love all of these things that are connected are, are important. So I like to say the self is quite complicated. We need to honor that. But I think a Christian approach allows us to take the internal and external worlds seriously, but all in light of looking to God, who's the one who affirms who we are, rather than being dependent on an, a shaky internal or external world. Which is where I think, you know, our friend Alan Noble mentions that, Reese says, you're not your own. You've been bought at a price. You're God's rather than belonging to yourself. It, it seems like you guys are talking very similarly. And you said there's overlap. Very, but you are, you really do rooted in creation. Mm. And, and you actually bring out a lot of theological voices over time, which was interesting to me. Mm. Not just bringing out Bonhoeffer, but you brought out John Owen, which I mm. see you have John Owen's works behind you <laughs> and you have his commentaries on Hebrews, I see. Why do people need to hear from John Owen, who is a a Brit writing in the, I mean, writing what? 17th 17th, century. 17th century. What does he have to say about our modern, about us today who are in modernity when he didn't even see really the industrial revolution? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do we need to hear from this guy about our modern understanding of our, 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 ourselves, if you will? I mean, part of the answer is, my dissertation was on Owen and his theology. So I, I actually think <laughs> Come on, that's lame. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta be more than that. No, I could be a lot genius. more than that. I'm just, I'm just warning you because of that. I'm, oh, again, I'm opening up the theological yeah. fire hose. Is that yeah, it? Yeah, but um, let's do the this. Short thing. answer. Part of what I, part of what drew me to Owen and a lot of my work on Owen is his view of what does it mean to be human, and that for him is anchored in this idea of communion with God. Humans. And this is kind of Kelly Capick's version of Owen, but humans were made to be in communion with God, communion with our neighbor, even communion with the earth. This is me drawing from Owen Owen and trying to unpack that. So I think Owen, for example, is someone, part of the reason people still read him and find him helpful is he's a bit of a bridge between a pre-modern world and a modern world where he's doing in some way, he's a serious theologian, very anchored in the tradition, deeply saturated in the scriptures. But he's also someone who has a keen understanding of kind of our psychologies. So I kind of call him a pre-modern psychologist. Like he wouldn't even know what that really is. He wouldn't think of it that way. But he is very, so his classic book on Justin Taylor and I did a a volume that has three of his books on sin and temptation. We call overcoming sin and temptation. And people still read it. It's very, it's not easy to read. He's a hard person to read. And so it's amazing how many people continue to read that and find it beneficial, but they will just say, I may only get to read three pages in a day, but it's like, he's peering into my soul. He understands my complex motivations. He understands my doubts. He understands, uh, you know, those kind of things. So I think Owen has helped me to kind of think, how do the scriptures and theology rate relate to life in general and the human predicament in particular. And that's often the theologians I'm looking for. Augustine is one. Calvin is one. Julian of Norwich is one. People who kind of bridge these worlds between deep theology and pastoral concern are people that I'm really looking to, to learn from. You not only bridge the, that divide 
as you mentioned, between you know the pre-modern and, and where we're at as a modern society. But you also have a tendency to bring in something that I found was very interesting is the global voice. People from different cultures peering in and seeing. And, and, and when you were talking about the tyranny of time, you talk about the clock, you talk about how it developed, you talk about how it's become kind of the the law. I mean, it's become a, a you know a tyrant in a in a way. But yet, you you bring out this idea of the African. How did you put it? I want to make sure I get this right here. But you you mention traditional African values. There were eight, and you reference a, a someone Nawaka Chris uh, Egbulum. I, I want to make sure I pronounce his name correctly on page one twenty five. And he mentions these African values that are often contrasted with our values. And if someone in, a, in the West, uh, in the modern West, and a person who is in the modern West would go in and they would see, they would disparage those values as thinking them being backwards. Why is it important to have those voices peer in and speak to us about our modern condition in a quote unquote pre-modern culture? I say that loosely. Yeah. As you know, that can go sideways or, and be, or how about but, modern, how about a majority world culture? Yes, Let's put it that okay, way. Yeah, majority yeah, world yeah. culture, the set of that, forgive me yeah, for that's, that pre-modern. That, no, that's no, way, that's but. great. So it, it's kind of like C.S. Lewis's account of why read old books. It's yeah. not because people in the past didn't sin and didn't have blind spots, but they just had different ones. And so we can see their blind spots like much more easily whether it's a racism or something, you know, and so we're not, tend to, we don't tend to be tempted by those, but then because they have different blind spots, they then expose our blind spots that we were ignoring. So, right? so rather than chronological snobbery, it's geographical snobbery. Exactly. I think we have geographical snobbery, right? And the kind of the condemning, uh, is arrogance that we have. Right. And so I just give you a couple examples. One is, and I tell a story of, you know, a, a college professor bringing some students over to Africa. Uh, this is, and even just saying Africa um, can be so um, general. But anyways, this is in Western Africa. And these students were watching a task in which these three men were were doing this task. And then later, as they were, as students were reflecting on, they, they just felt so confident. Like, why? Why? Did, it was so inefficient, so bad. Why did it take three people to do what one person could done? And this is da-da-da. And they were pretty judgmental of it. And the question was, it's not that that particular location and culture doesn't value efficiency, but it wasn't their highest value. Uh, they have these other values like friendship and like um, working together and working together and giving other people dignity and labor and some of those things, which is fascinating. So since you brought up the time part here, here's an example that really helped me. So scholars talk about a distinction between a contextual view of time and a non-contextual view of time. And throughout most of the history of the world and throughout a lot of the world that's not in the West, it's pretty common to have what's called a non-contextual view of time. I, I, I'm sorry, to have a contextual view of time. Before I explain that, let me explain, say in America, we have a contextual view of, or we have an, I'm sorry, we have a non-contextual view of time. What, what that means is simply when it's 11 o'clock at night and I have something to do, I open up my, I turn on the kitchen lights. I open up my laptop. The screen stares at me. And I think I have an hour of work to do and I have an hour. I should do it. 
as if my body chemistry and blood sugar levels are irrelevant, as if the darkness outside is irrelevant, as if the baby crying in the background is irrelevant. It's all about, no, there's just time and I should be able to utilize every moment in a certain kind of way. Context is relevant. We're in the history of the world and much of the non-Western world. Contextual time is key. So there's a reason we talk about springtime and harvest. And there are times in the season where you need to work super long days because it's harvest time and you have this small window. And then there are times when you work much shorter days. Does that mean they're lazy, right? This kind of seasonal that that when it's dark, you know, I, it's funny. Sometimes Christians are like, yeah, this person from the past, they would wake up at four in the morning to pray and kind of, you know, I'm old enough now to be cynical. I'm like, well, it might be because they went to bed at eight when it was dark. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> so you're, you're, you got the lights on till 11 at night and you're like, in order to be spiritual, we got to wake up at four. Like, you, just so you know, you're comparing apples to oranges, you know, and it's this kind of shame and guilt again. But, but the reality is there's just a different nature, like elect. I am not against technology, but we have to recognize how all of these things are affecting us. Even you know, there's been work on like this, the average speed that a person can walk three miles an hour, the speed of a horse. My wife likes to talk about the ethics of a horse. You can only run a horse so long and then it has to stop. It has to drink. You need to get off of it. You, otherwise the horse dies, right? This is one of the problems in movies when they show horses just going on and on. And on. that's not actual, that's not real, but that's how we treat humans now. And, and our model now we've, for the longest time we've worried for the longest time, we've tried to make robots like humans, but as many people, you know, we're like, no, actually what's happened now is we've made humans like robots. So rather than comparing ourselves to say horses or other animals, we kind of now are shaped by say a cell phone. And when the cell phone is tired, when it turns red and it's like 10%, you just plug it in, come back an hour later and unplug it. And it it's good to go. Just like new. And we kind of think that should be us. But we're not machines. We're a lot more complicated than that. We need food. We need laughter. We need rest. We need space to breathe. So we are living in the midst of those tensions. And I do think you don't just have to read history books. You can learn from people living in different places in different contexts who can help us see what we're missing. For the longest time, we tried to make robots like humans. But actually, what's happened now is we've made humans like robots. But we're not machines. We're a lot more complicated than that. That's an amazing quote. We were created by God with limits and needs, and those are good things. Yes, sin is real. Yes, there is healthy guilt and healthy shame. Signs from the spirit that something is wrong and we need to get back to God. We learned that from our conversation with Taylor Lau, and it's a really important conversation. If you want to go back and listen, I would highly recommend doing so. Episodes 117 and 118, if you haven't heard them yet. It might sound strange, but we want healthy guilt and shame, not toxic guilt and shame that comes simply because we're human. Our bodies matter to God because he made them. They have purpose, needs, and limitations. We have, as I mentioned in the conversation with Kelly, talked with Tim Tennant in episode 82 and Nancy Piercy, episode 78 and 79, about exactly that. 
Grounding who we are in the doctrine of creation is crucial, and we often need others who aren't like us to help us to see the blind spots we have and help us to better understand how our humanity is anchored in communion with God, our neighbor, and even the earth. And that's the thing. We can't water our world if we don't see how God made it, how he made us. If we want to live well-watered lives, if we want to show others a genuine faith that is worth having, we need to remember that not only we, but those people are created by God too, and that he created well, even if we can't see it on the surface. As you no doubt have figured out, the conversation continues next week. Until then, I want to thank our Apollos Water team for making this dream a reality and to let you know that this is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Da, 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 da.